When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Lucky Let Court Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I am your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you on Friday, September 22nd. The tennis world, as always, moves on, but today we're going to take a circle back to a couple weeks ago and take a deep dive into Novak Djokovic's 24th Grand Slam title, also looking at his legacy all the incredible history that Djokovic has been able to achieve since he became a pro, since he turned 30, and now, remarkably, since he's turned 35. Now 36, Djokovic back to number one. I think it's week number 391 atop the ATP rankings. We've got a special guest to talk about Djokovic's career. That is none other than Hall of Fame journalist Steve Flink, a good friend and colleague who was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 2017. Always a special time when you get to talk with Steve about the history of the sport and who better than him to come in and discuss Djokovic's legacy, past, present, and future. Where might this man be headed in 2024? Of course, it's an Olympic year, so we talk about that. We talk about Djokovic's rivalries with the big three, and we talk about maybe which players in history might be able to stack up to this great legend. Lots to talk about, and happy to have Steve Flink on the program. So why don't we get to the interview, and I will see you guys on the other side. Hey, Steve. Pleasure to be speaking with you. It's been a couple weeks since we were together in New York. How have you been? Very. You know what? It's gone by so fine, so quickly, Chris. I and I, I'm not, but I've de- I've decompressed and looking back fondly at the Open, and it was very enjoyable. And we watched a few matches together, so had our talks in the press room. So uh, I, I look back on that fortnight and realizing I thought it was a, a way above average Open. Yeah, it was fun. It was and it was great to to be able to to spend time with you as we always do. We even got to watch Novak actually, the guy we're going to be talking about today. We watched him uh, play against Taylor Fritz on Ash in some pretty extreme heat, just the beginning of that New York heat wave that kind of took us almost all the way to the final weekend. We did, we did. And, of course, the roof was only partially shut. So, uh, yes, it blocked a lot of – it blocked the sun, but it was still an oven in there. It's still very tough on the players in those conditions. So I must say I wish that the – I wish that the Open would revisit their policy, Chris, and and have a – you know, just make common sense decisions for the heat and say, you know what, they're, they're walking around, they stand out there with the roof open and say, no, this is too much. Players, and consult with the players, and I'm sure almost every instance these players would say, no, shut, please shut it. Yes. And I don't see why it can't be used for that purpose instead of just the threat of rain. So I, I, I wish that that, that's when I wish they would reexamine because when Medvedev said that, when he was playing Rublev in the quarters, that somebody's going to die out here, that really wasn't hyperbolic. I mean, he had a legitimate point. Yeah. And uh, I think many other players would have felt precisely the same way. Yeah. 
And it, yeah, and I think it's, it doesn't come across to the viewers maybe watching on TV just how thick that air was, how humid it was, and how sapping it could be for a two, three, maybe even four or five hour tennis match. So yeah, I definitely see your point. I think especially as you get to the later end of the tournament where you're not having play on the outside court, so you're not giving the players an unfair advantage that are on Ash. There's only matches on Ash, so why not keep it cool and get the quality of tennis a little bit higher and preserve the players' health? I, I, I think they're going to have to revisit it at some point, and it seems like the mother nature is going to force that upon them. I think so. And, they, and it's, as far as the outside courts are concerned, the air circulates out there. Very, it's very different. True. The problem they have in Ash is that the good news is that when they put the roof up, they took the wind out of that stadium. It used to be exceedingly windy, and they are tough on the players with the degree of wind in almost every match. Yeah. But now it's kind of airless. Yeah. So it, it, it's very stifling. And I just and I frankly don't think it's great for the spectators either. I don't think they it, it's can be uncomfortable sitting in there when it's that hot and the temperature's gone above 90 and you don't have the air, as opposed to with the roof being shut, air conditioning on, it's just in, incredibly comfortable and and the lighting is excellent. I think the atmosphere with the roof closed is excellent. Yeah, absolutely is. Fallen in love with Ash over the last few years, personally being able to be there and sit in those great media seats. A lot of times with you, um, it's it's a it's an experience unlike any other for sure. Um, let's look at let's. Uh, the reason I want to talk to you, Steve, is because I love catching up with you about really big occasions in history of of this sport, and no one is better at you in doing that. And I wanted to just really just have a free and open discussion on Novak Djokovic, his achievements in 2023, look at his legacy a little bit, big picture, maybe compare him to the big three a little bit. And I guess we can start just with a simple question. How has he shifted the tectonic plates of tennis, if you will, in 2023 by winning these three majors, by getting his 24th major at the U.S. Open just a couple of weeks ago? I think he's he's bolstered his case considerably on on the goat argument. Obviously, that's it's never can be fully resolved. There's never going to be a definitive greatest of all time. However, what he's done is to kind of reaffirm that he's the certainly the best player of his era. You know that he has surpassed Roger and Rafa. The question will be obviously we have to allow Rafa to have the chance to come back. Who's to know? It's 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 very unlikely that Rafa wins another major, but I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past him to somehow pull off a 15th Roland Garros under the best possible circumstances. Odds heavily against. But Djokovic has positioned himself so strongly now, Chris, because, you know, by being too ahead of Rafa, he's got a bit of a cushion. And his record is just more diversified. You know, Rafa wins 14 of his 22 majors at Roland Garros, which just... Establishes beyond any doubt that he's the greatest clay court player we've, we've ever had. It's just an astonishing record, but and never lost a final at Roland Garros, which is also remarkable. But you know, then he then he's eight and eight at the in finals at the other majors, which is nothing to uh, be too critical of. It just shows that uh, you know the bulk of his best work has been done on the dirt. Now, he still managed to win four U.S. Opens, the same as Novak, which is remarkable. He still managed to win a couple of Australian and a couple of Wimbledon, so it's an excellent record. But it isn't as surface. Uh, it's, it's just not as great surface to surface. I mean, Novak, we think of him as the greatest hardcore player, but it's the six indoor year-end championships, ATP championships, the 39 
Masters, 1,000 crowns, many of and most of them off of clay. Yeah. So you you look at his record and you feel like he's almost equally good on all surfaces. And he's now managed to he's picked up his total of French Open titles up to three now, which is also excellent considering how hard they are to come by in this era. Yeah. So I just feel like he he's in his case the it, it's a better all surface record than either Rafa or Roger. And yeah. So to, then to be two ahead in the majors. he's 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 really raised his historical stock those three were very important given the lost time given the fact that he couldn't play the u.s open last year because he hadn't taken the vaccine that he had the freakish incident at the u.s open in 2020 when he was the heavy favorite and he hit a lineswoman with a ball just carelessly casually flicked it back with his racket and hit her and so he was disqualified then he injured against stan vavrinka in 2019 when he was the favorite so he had to retire mid-match there. So he's had so many mishaps at the Open, and he had lost six of his nine previous finals, which was very surprising given that this is a guy who now is 24-12 and 12 in major finals, to that he would have lost six out of nine. So I think he was kind of overdue to win this one. And now, you know, as I say, I think his historical st- stock and stature have been enlarged considerably by the three majors this year. Yeah, and it's and and I like that you make that point. I read I read your article in UB Tennis where you say there will never definitively be a player who stands alone indisputably as the greatest of all time. And right. And I want to I want you to elaborate on that if you could, because you kind of made the case for him among the big three, who many people I guess maybe to a fault will consider that's the race for the greatest of all time. So what are you actually talking about? And I just wonder if you can elaborate a little bit and say, you know, who holds a candle to Novak Djokovic in terms of his, the history of this great sport? Yeah. I mean, listen, it, 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 what I'm saying there is that I think he is demonstrably the greatest male player of the open era because we can measure that it's, it's much more easily measured and this, the majors have grown in stature and importance over time, and we can look at their records against each other. It's, it, it's much more definable, if I can use that word, much more easily defined. Yeah. But pre-open era is not. So you have these great players like Tilden, the dominant force of the 1920s, winning seven U.S. championships and three at Wimbledon, and and uh, Don Budge, the first to win the Grand Slam in '38, and he turned pro, and Jack Kramer, the dominant force of the 40s and into the 50s, and uh, Pancho Gonzalez in that era as well. These guys, what would happen is they would have great amateur careers, then turn pro and not be eligible for the majors. So someone as great as Pancho Gonzalez, uh, he, he, uh, he plays Wimbledon through the late 40s, and then we don't see him almost gone for almost 20 years. Right. He came back in his 40s. And so it's really kind of unfair to them. And, to, and then Labor, who crisscrossed. Yep. Won a Grand Slam in the as an amateur in '62 again as a pro in '69. Uh, you know, Rod was lost in the wilderness of pro tennis for a long time too. Ken Rosewell. There were so many greats. How many years was Labor? Possibly... Sorry. Well, Labor, Labor, Labor turned pro at the end of '62, and then he couldn't reappear at the majors until '68. Wow. Till the '68 French. So he and everybody, you know, who's to know? Rod might have won another ten majors in that period. Who's to say? So the numbers are a bit skewed in that fashion. That's why I don't want to do a disservice to them. But you also probably noticed that I put in that piece, too, that Djokovic is always going to be at the center of this conversation. Absolutely. We're always going to be asking, but was he really better? Can we really put him above Djokovic? That, that I'm convinced of. 
he for as as long as as we live and well beyond uh you know as long as this subject is discussed as long as there is a game of tennis yeah people 50 years from now are going to look back and say but uh, is is Jack McGillicuddy? Can we really say McGillicuddy is better than Novak Djokovic? <laughs> I, that's guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah, he's kind of set the standard here, and he continues to set it. And we don't even know what's going to happen in the next couple of years. Meaning, it's, there's a potential for two slams in two consecutive years in a total of 28. And it's not just slams where he's excelling, although that is his focus of late. As he's, he, you know, it's well documented that that's really what he's going after these days. But all the records, the weeks at number one are about to tick to 400. But I wanted to ask you this one thing as our next point of discussion, the longevity, the ability for Novak to win half of his majors since turning 30. What does that say to you? Where do you see that historically? Yeah, that's that. that I, I don't think he would have. I think if you told him that when he was 28, he would have laughed and said, "You're a very nice fellow. You must <laughs> you must really like me." Yeah, yeah. Because I don't think he anticipated any more than Rafa anticipated that uh, he was going to pick up eight in his 30s, which is a True. pretty extraordinary number. That was inconceivable. Yeah. Uh, but yes, for Novak to get 12 of them and lose only three finals in that span and do that much extraordinary work in his 30s. And with more to come, as you just anticipated, there's no reason to believe. I mean, I think we'd all be very surprised if he didn't win at least a couple more. I, I think four is realistic uh, because I think he's going to go all out full force the next two years, especially, and target every major. And it gets back to what I was saying earlier is that we know how great he is on every surface. And if, if the old essential Rafa doesn't suddenly reemerge or revitalize uh, uh, Rafa comes back to Roland Garros and, and he's actually played well along the way. If he, in the best case scenario, Rafa's like that, okay. But otherwise, why couldn't Novak defend his Roland Garros title? Why can't he go back to Australia and win an 11th? And, and obviously he had seven Wimbledons and, and he hadn't lost there. You know, he had won every Wimbledon he'd played starting in 2018 and the tournament wasn't played in 20 and almost did it again this year. Almost got his eighth. So he's going to go back there with with added incentive, yeah. and then come back to the open, try to defend. So you look at each major and say, but why couldn't he win it? Well, obviously, Alcaraz is going to be in the thick of the picture for sure. And I think we're going to see a, a magnificent rivalry between the two, mm-hmm. uh, as evidenced by, especially by the two last two matches, the five-setter at Wimbledon, and then the epic in Cincinnati, which in some ways was even better, where Djokovic fended off Alcaraz tiebreaker in the third nearly four hours for a best-of-three-set match. So... I think we're going to see some some tremendous tussles between the two over the next two years. But I also expect Novak to hold his own there. I don't. It would surprise me if Alcaraz could just start beating him regularly, as opposed to a, a tug of war. Yeah. So that's why I think realistically that four more is is entirely possible. At least three more. Yeah, twenty-seven, twenty-eight majors. That's uh, that's a pretty nice haul. Sure is. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, we wouldn't have expected it when he was turning 30 and still had about 12. And, and, you're, and it's, you're right to mention Nadal. And I think if Djokovic didn't exist and we looked at Nadal's achievements after turning 30, we'd say it's one, it's one of the most incredible achievements that we've seen among the men. Of course, Serena even has more on the women's side. But, but I wanted to move it along a little bit and discuss the evolution of Novak. In your mind, how has he been able to do it? How is he doing it now, particularly 
at the age of 35, 36, which is really uncharted waters for in terms of men winning Grand Slam titles. How has he been able to do it? You mentioned a little bit in your video with Gil Gross. I think it's called Monday Match Analysis. You guys talked a little bit about his ability to get to the net more often, to serve in volley, to adapt to his new rivals. Do you have any deeper thoughts on that for me? Yeah, I think that's a part of it. Definitely the, the, the capacity to attack and to do it judiciously and do it at all the right times and the, the, the much better technique on the volley, which I think goes back to Boris Becker coaching him, goes back probably seven, eight years. But he wasn't as good then on the volley as he is now. So he's only become more proficient up there. He can make the low volleys and the half volleys. There was that one half volley drop. Uh, a serve and volley point where he angled the volley cross court to break point down at 3-4 in the second set. It was one of the most critical points of the match in the final against Medvedev at the U.S. Open. So, yeah, it's all those things. He's more adaptable. He has added all that punch. Punch is the word I come to think of, power, potency, whatever you want to say. He can tee off more off this forehand than now with control as opposed to early in his career, he'd sometimes try to do it, but he might flail at it a bit. It wasn't, the stroke was not nearly as solid as it is now. So he can feel now that he can go full force off the forehand and try to flatten it out and go for winners or go for shots that are going to be point concluders yeah. and, and miss very little. So the forehand is better than it's ever been, the ability to come in, and the serve. The serve with the pinpoint accuracy plus the pace, you'll see him, in that 124, 125, 126 range. Well, I remember when he was playing Federer in the 2015 U.S. Open final, and I, I, you, you wouldn't see him go above 123. So maybe he's serving just a tad higher when he needs it. But yeah. it's the placement. It's the ability to win quick points off the serve and to serve in volley selectively. So that he's more complete than he's ever been before. Plus, I think he paces himself, Chris, better than he ever has. I think... There will be some points that he'll subtly concede. If it's not a big point, if it's two all, 15 all, and the guy you know unloads off the forehand down the line, maybe he doesn't chase it because he says this is this this is not a big enough point. This is not worth my. He yeah. has sort of a sixth sense of when to do that. Yeah. Uh, and so his you know there's the intelligence on top of everything else. Yeah. The way he can nav- navigate his way through these matches. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I was the, the the word intelligence was coming into my mind. It's, it's he's intelligently evolving his game. He said, very well said right there. I wonder if, if you were going to make the argument for Djokovic, which maybe you already did at the onset of this uh, chat, against his big three rivals, against Rafa, against Roger, and if we didn't judge it solely on Grand Slams, which of course we shouldn't. Where do you think the one or two things would be that set Novak apart from his big three rivals? And you know, as we look at this historically and put it in perspective, well, he's soon going to be closing in on 400 weeks. I never was a that big a fan of weeks at number one, but when it gets that high, yeah. that shows an, an excellence across time that is pretty remarkable. So I don't want to ignore that. And the seven years also, seven years where he's concluded number the year at number one, he might not make it this year. Chris, because it appears to me that he's, he's, he's ready to concede that to Carlos in the interest of being ready for Davis Cup, which is after the ATP Tour season and later in November, and just because he wants to preserve himself for next year and the Slam, so that means more to him. So having already finished seven years at number one, he may forego the, the eighth, although it's not impossible with a 
strong finish at the Paris Bercy event indoors, and then the UN Championships in Turin that he that he could secure it again. So I think those that that supremacy, the the, the ranking supremacy, is something that uh, is something else on top of the Masters 1000s, on top of the majors. He's got an awful lot of statistical landmarks there in his favor. Yeah. And I want to ask you this question for you personally and then for you maybe knowing Novak as you know Novak. What, in your mind, do you think he has left to achieve over these next two, three years? And what, personally, would you like to see him achieve? Maybe he has his own priorities. Maybe, in your mind, you'd like to see him do something that he's not prioritizing. I just wonder if there's any discrepancy between those two things. I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. I'd, I'd like to just see him, you know, icing on the cake is the wrong expression, but I would like to see him add even a little bit more luster while he has the chance to do it because there's far less pressure now. Again, especially assuming that Rafa doesn't make an, just the, the most extraordinary of comebacks and somehow pull off a couple of majors next year and tie Novak without Novak winning another. It's hard to see that happening. So casting that aside, I think the pressure is a bit off and, and therefore he can just isolate these majors and go after them without feeling like he absolutely has to win them, but being deeply determined to do so. So I'd like to see him, you know, make good on his chances and keep that record in major finals going, which is a two to one ratio now, which is excellent for yeah. at one time, maybe after 16, he was eight and eight or he's seven and eight. He was down in that range. And then now, and maybe 16 of the last 20 in that range. So he has um, become more and more the quintessential big match player as well. So, uh, you know, I'm, I, and, and then I also would like to see him give his best against Alcaraz in some epics, as we were talking about earlier. Absolutely. Because that would be a nice, nice sort of farewell part of his career in, in the sense that he dealt with, with uh, Roger and Rafa for so long, and then he's had to contend with someone as tough as Medvedev in recent years, whom, whom he respects immensely as, a, as an opponent. And, you know, so the newer generation has come along. They want to incredibly physical five-set final over uh, Dominic Team back at the Australian Open back in 2020. So there's, he's, he's dealt with, with the, the multitude of players, opponents, uh, you know, through these last 15, 16 years. So if he could conclude it with a couple more, one or two more big wins with, over Alcaraz in major finals, I think that would be immensely psychically rewarding to him given that he's given the fact that he's giving away 16 years. I mean, it's one thing we think of when Pete Sampras had to confront say Murat Safin and Leighton Hewitt, and he was giving away about 10 years. And we thought that was a big deal. And it is. And we talked about Roger and Rafa when that rivalry was flourishing. And the fact that Roger was five years older, yes. that was a big deal. Well, Alcaraz is, is incredibly mature for 20. He's mature way beyond his years. Sure. He, he admitted to some immaturity in his loss to Medvedev, but that was just in the way that he played the match. But he still competed hard, and he's got a good head on his shoulders, and he's done. He's got two majors in his pocket in his collection already. Yeah. So uh, I think that would be something that would Djokovic would find very, very satisfying to come up with a couple more uh, that uh, of his remaining majors, if, if a couple of them could be by going through Alcaraz. Yeah. Yeah, that would be exciting for all of us, no doubt about it. And I think I think it helps Djokovic uh, have that target, that that ex that that talented 
Spaniard, who's clearly coming and emerging as one of the greatest talents in the sport now, just gives him a little bit extra motivation, perhaps, uh, like he got. From yeah, and also, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Also, oh. the fact that Alcaraz is such a is such a, and then he's, he plays differently. There's a lot of Federer in, in him, more Federer than Nadal, but he's his own unique player, and he does so many things well. There's so much versatility in his game, and he takes chances, he takes risks, he unnerves you with his shot-making talent yeah. and his intensity out there. And then he knows when to dial it back. Uh, I mean, he did that beautifully in the Wimbledon final because he was missing a lot of returns early on in the first set against Djokovic. And then we, I saw him start to really settle down and get a lot of first-serve returns back in play just by blocking them. And I thought, you know what? He learns, he, he adjusts so well, so fast, most yeah. of the time. At such a so high level. I just feel like, that challenge is something that Djokovic finds stimulating. He accepts the challenge. He would have been fine with trying to play him again in the open final and it would have felt pretty good about his chances coming off Cincinnati. So I, I just and I just feel the sport benefits. Yeah. Let these two guys play five or six really big matches over the next two to three years and the sport will 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 celebrate it and they'll each have their, their fan bases and the tennis will be just dazzling. Let's have it. So 96 titles for Novak, 13 shy of Jimmy Connors' record. Seems like a bit of a long shot given the fact that he's prioritizing these majors. Yeah, I think so. I think he'd need to have three really good productive years. I mean, I see two for sure. He would then need to go through 20, in my view, go through 2026, still at playing really high-level stuff winning some slams and then backing it up with some other titles, which, of course, he's done this year with Adelaide. It's only a 250, I guess, and then obviously Cincinnati is a 1,000. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you want to pick up some of those in addition to the slams yeah. and try to be winning somewhere in the range of five, six, at least five or six a year, and then he could do it. Uh, so I, I think his I – will, I will say, I think in his mind, the big thing is just get to 100. Yeah. And and if he could break Federer, if he, Federer at 103, if he goes past Roger, that would be satisfying. And even if he didn't catch Connors, but I think it's going to take three really very good seasons, which is entirely possible. I just think I, I'm confident that he gets two of those years. Yeah. Where he's going to feel, how he's going to feel like physically and psychically by 2026, I don't know. But if he's still there and still driven, then he then he could break the Connors record. And what do you think about the Olympics next year? That could make it a little bit more challenging than most years, or maybe even if all things go well, a little bit more rewarding for Djokovic. Yeah, he's had bad luck at the Olympics. You know, Drew Delpo, I guess, back in 16 in the first round. And, you know, it just hasn't worked out for him. Delpo, he lost to Andy Murray in 2012 in the Wimbledon grass, and then Delpo beat him even for the bronze, the Battle of the Bronze. And, it, just all told, and then it looked like he, this last time, Tokyo looked like he was all set, barreled into the semifinals, and he's up a set and 3-1 against Zarev and lost seven or eight games in a row from there and said later that he just hit a wall. It was That was really surprising, given that he has this astonishing record of after winning the first set of any match yeah. in the range of 925 and 41. I mean, he's, he's up there at point nine fifty eight, uh, which is the best of any player in the open era. So... That was a shocker against Zero. So you look back on the, the Olympic years, and, you know, he lost to Rafa in a semi. I remember way back in 08 in a very hard-fought semi. So he's had uh, – he's been close. 
and um, but it just hasn't worked out yet. And I, I agree, you're right to point to that because he'll be that will be one of his chief objectives for next year, and it's going to be require a, a real quick turnaround on surfaces. Not going to be easy grass to clay, clay to grass to clay. I guess that'll be the sequence. Yes. And uh, but he's he's prepared for that, and he, he'll he'll know that this is clear. It's it's now that's a now or never moment. He absolutely has to do that. If he's going to get that gold, it's going to be next year or never. So that, that will have him pumped up for sure, and I, he'll be in the thick of it. The question will be, uh, after playing Roland Garros and Wimbledon not long before, can he, can he climb to the heights again so soon at the Olympics, and is, is he physically at his best? Because if he's gone deep, if he's won, if he's been, say, in both finals and won one of those and, or won them both, whatever it might be, if he's done really well at both Roland Garros and Wimbledon, it's going to make the Olympics a tough physical hurdle, but I, I think he's, I think he's preparing for himself for that, and I doubt he'll play much on the clay, leading up to the French Open. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to watch. You think maybe winning an Olympic gold would rank a little bit heavier than a single slam, maybe for him and his legacy? Do you think it even matters? I mean, that other players have the Olympic gold and that he doesn't. I mean, I think those of us that are close to the sport know that it's it can be very tricky to get these medals and a lot depends on you know it happens every four years sometimes they're, it's just tricky yeah. it, it, to me it doesn't yeah matter i mean at all. It, it's it it's just a yeah i agree with you it's a feather in his cap if he can do it but if he doesn't do it he can can it be held over him because rafa managed to do it i mean roger didn't get the he didn't get one in singles he won a doubles gold so right. it is hard you're right and timing has to be perfect and no, I don't. I don't think so. But that's an interesting point about the slam. I mean, interestingly, I think going to t- Tokyo, playing the Olympics last time in '21, which yeah. was played a year late, that I think it did cost him the, the Grand Slam because I think he was so physically and mentally drained by the time he got yeah, That was a long trip to make. When he was interviewed right after Wimbledon, his answer was he wasn't sure. He might be fifty-fifty. I felt like he was leaning against it at that point. But I think a lot of his countrymen and people that he respected in Serbia convinced him that he should go over there and it would be important for the country and for him. And it almost worked out. But even if he'd won it over there, I still think maybe that was going to – either way, I think he was coming to New York drained. It happened to Rafa, I thought, the same in – in a kind of a similar way. Rafa had won his first Wimbledon in 08 after winning Roland Garros as well. And he he'd not yet won the Open. He eventually lost to Andy Murray in the semis, and I felt kind of similarly about that, that Rafa looked drained and unhappy and just not emotionally where he wanted to be when he came to New York. And the tournament was, was a struggle, and it was a real strain, and he played Murray and over two days because there was heavy rain, and right. he lost. And, and at that time, that was surprising, and he would have had a crack at playing Roger in the final having beaten Roger at both Roland Garros and Wimbledon. So, Roger, that would have been a tough one for Roger to win. I, yeah. I, I think Rafa would have won that Open. But that, I just feel that that's how I felt about Novak at the Open two years ago when, when it was constantly having to come from a set down and eventually Medvedev beat him in the finals. And uh, I think had he not made the Olympic journey, I, I really believe he would have won that slam. So yeah. all that's going to be in the, in the mix next year, and he'll have to weigh it all and – I guess you can say it's a nice problem to have. Yeah, it is, right? I mean, and also going back to what you're saying, I mean, Novak Djokovic clearly on a superhuman level, but even the superhumans have only so much gas left in the tank, and especially he's going to be 37 at this time next year. 
Exactly. And it shows in some ways. We saw him there. Obviously, he was there were moments of, of extreme physical stress during the Medvedev second set, the hour 44 minute set. He'd be slumped over his racket at times, although I think part of that is just it's, it's not theatrical. It's just it's a release. It's venting. It's like you, you've, you've played this 32 stroke rally or whatever it might be. And you really wanted that point and you lost it. And it, it was upsetting. And but you'd also see him then get right back on the horse. You'd see him immediately get himself back in there, and, and you never felt like he was physically fading. So it's harder. He has to, uh, as I said earlier, he's got to pace himself more these days. But it's a matter of playing less tournaments, and it's a matter of how he approaches these matches in terms of when he's going to completely dig after every ball and put his best defense on display. And he just can't do that as frequently as he did in the old days. Yep. And maybe we can conclude, Steve, with a, a big picture, full circle type of question. If you look, having covered the sport since the beginning of Novak's career, and well before that, of course, but seen it all from Novak Djokovic, what would you say you loved about him at the start of his career, and how has that evolved, and what do you love most maybe about him now, and maybe what are the differences between the way you felt about him 20 years ago or 15 years ago when he was winning his first major in 2008 in Australia, and how you feel about him now? Well, I, I felt about him then. I, I just admire, I admired his game, and, I, and like a lot of other observers, both fans and reporters, I, I loved the exuberance. And I'll never forget when he got to his first major final at the 20, 2007 U.S. Open and lost it to Roger, despite having five set points in the first set and two more in the second. He lost six, six, and four, I guess the third set was. Yeah. But the first two were breakers and heartbreaking loss. But during that tournament is when he, he started, after the quarters he did on television, he did all of his impersonations. Yes. And I, that's what I remember most about that era is the exuberance and the this, this sense of having fun and mixing a serious passion with with some with laughter and in a way that none of his rivals was capable was willing to do and i understand it everybody has a different disposition and they shouldn't have felt obligated to follow suit but i thought it was a very very refreshing for tennis and the imitations were hilarious and yeah i i, I liked what that the freshness that he brought to the sport then over time what i liked the most was first how how he uh it was almost inconceivable the way he did it in 2011 to overtake Roger and Rafa, move to the top, and yeah. lose once combined to the two. I mean, once you know he's beating Rafa, and not only was he beating Rafa in the in all those uh, in the Wimbledon and U.S. Open finals, uh, and beating Roger in the semis of the U.S. Open, but he was beating them in Masters 1000. I think he had one loss combined to the two. It was a remarkable transformation. So I like that the. Uh, that was leading him toward what I would say about him these days and yeah, the yeah. Novak we've seen of the, since 2018 on, the seriousness of purpose I, I, and openly stating his goals yeah. and saying, I'm going after, that's what I want to do. The slams are the most important. I want most weeks at number one. Never, never sort of shying away from what he was trying to attain and going at it full force. And uh, I, I, I've just becoming a thorough top-of-the-line professional who leaves no stone unturned in his pursuit of the most prestigious prizes. That's ah, perfect, Steve. You hit so many good things. That especially, I remember being there in 2007, actually, after the Moya quarterfinal. This guy did two minutes of imitations of Sharapova's serve yeah. and whatnot on the court, and you're thinking, yeah. this guy is a character, right? And uh, Oh, he was. 
And I remember when he sort of turned to Michael Barkan when Barkan was trying to get him to do it at the start, and he said, well, what do you want to do? you want to have a coffee? <laughs> I mean, you, you didn't hear that kind of talk from players. And, and the, to, I thought it was a little unfortunate that some of the other guys, some of the other players were not enamored of this. And he, So he rightfully decided to sort of back off that in public because he was never trying to offend anybody. But one of the people he imitated was Maria Sharapova, who, yeah. sat, who was a friend of his, who sat in the box, I believe, with, for the yeah. finals, and uh, she was willing to laugh at herself. Rafa at that stage was okay with Novak doing <laughs> an impersonation of him, and yeah. I thought it, that was great for the game. Legendary stuff. And then I, before we go, I just want to like, like everything you said about 2011, to me that is the most mind-blowing moment of Djokovic's career, how he was able to really flip the script on the rivalries with the big three. And, and for me, what was most impressive is the way that he played against Nadal on clay in venues like you know Roland Garros a few times, Rome, Madrid, those yeah, some of, some of yeah. those wins were so impressive. I still can't believe it. How because Rafa is so unbeatable on that surface, and was it maybe having struggles here and there, but basically in his prime and just so tough. And the way Djokovic was able and you to know solve what, that Chris? puzzle. Please yeah, go. while you're saying that, I'm realizing, of course, he might. That was another year that he might have won the Grand Slam. He was unbeaten for the year. 41 and 0 on the year before oh. he lost to Federer in that semifinal, which was a shocker at Roland Garros, where he had had a default along the way and was a bit rusty. And Roger played a spectacular match yeah. to beat him Incredible. over two days. But suppose he wins that and gets another crack at Rafa, who he's already beaten in those other ATP Tour events that you mentioned, big 1000s. So he might well have beaten Rafa in the French final and just gone on to win the Grand Slam that year. So it's yep. it's remarkable to think that. He had a shot at it that year and only lost one. He's had four years where he's won three majors, that he might have been in a position to win the slam in 11. Same thing in 15 when he lost to Stan Wawrinka in the French final and and went on and won Wimbledon in the Open and capped off his year with three majors. And then so close in 21, one match away, and so close this year when you think about it, losing to Carlos in the Wimbledon final and then coming back to win his third major of the year at the U.S. Open. It's pretty astounding. It is. It is. The whole career is astounding. And I'm speaking to the right person about it. Thank you, Steve, for joining me and helping me put some of this greatness of Novak in perspective. And the crazy thing is, you mentioned that calendar slam. He may be in the running for it again next year. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? knows? You're right. You're right. He he never ceases to amaze, right? And, And same for you. You never cease to amaze. I'm glad we got to discuss this. I really enjoyed it. And, um, geez, I hope I get to speak with you a lot more often than we have this year because I think this is just the second time maybe or maybe even the first. I don't even want to think about that. Yeah. But, but... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I, I'm looking at my watch right now and realizing we went about 40 minutes, and I feel like we packed a, a lot into 40 minutes. So thank you very much for hosting this so skillfully. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Thanks for your time, and uh, we'll do it again soon, I'm sure. Okay, Chris, look forward to it. This edition of the Lucky Let Court podcast is a wrap. Special thanks to Steve Flink, Tennis Hall of Famer, for spending some time with us today. Always a pleasure to break down the sport with one of the greatest historians that this game has ever seen. So much passion, so much knowledge. Thank you, Steve, for joining. You guys can find us on the web at www.tennisnow.com. You can also find us on social media, facebook.com slash tennisnow, and hit us up on X, formerly known as Twitter, 
at tennis underscore now. And of course, we love it if you rate, review, subscribe to this podcast. It means a lot to us, keeps us motivated, keeps us bringing you new episodes. You can go into Apple Podcasts and search Lucky Let Cord Podcast, voila, or you can just use any of your search engines. It's Lucky Let Cord Podcast. We thank you all for listening. We appreciate that you've done so, and we will see you next time. And- <laughs>